Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. My name is Jonathan Chan and I'm a Master of Business Analytics student at MIT Sloan. And I'm really pleased to announce our next panel, Sponsorship in the 2020s. Leveraging Technology to Uncover Gems, presented by Hookit. This panel is also part of the business track, which is presented by Ticketmaster. Our panelists today include Robert Hoffman, VP Accounts Director and Club Business Sponsorship at the NFL, Lauren Riker, Global Accounts, sorry, Global Associate Digital Marketing Manager at New Balance, Scott Tilton, CEO and founder of Hookit, and this panel will be moderated by Tiffany Fritz, who's the Business Operations Manager at ESPN. This panel will run for 45 minutes and will be followed by 10 minutes of Q&A. If you would like to submit a question through Twitter, you can do so through the hashtag sports sponsorship. The, the questions with the most mentions will be filtered through by our moderator. And with that, I'll pass it off to Tiffany to kick us off. Thank you. Okay, for, can everyone hear me to start? I can hear me, so that's good. Um, we did talk about in the back, too, we had a real missed opportunity with it being a sponsorship panel not to all wear New Balance sneakers, because we all own them. Um, so we started off not on the wrong foot, but we'll get back. Um, thank you all for coming out. I know uh, just not only making it to the conference, but also there's tons of other panels during this time. If we're lucky, maybe we'll hear them from here. Um, but we'll get started just with the last decade. So tons has changed in sponsorship, data, technology, all of it. And it really, for these three people especially, has changed the way that they do business overall. So do you want to start whether it's the last two years, the last 10 years, what has been the big change in technology and sponsorship with your organization? Yeah, you want me to start? Sure. Yeah, for, for us on the sponsorship side, it's really been the changing dynamic of the staff in general, right? It, it was primarily your sales staff, and your service staff. And in the last 10 years, service has changed from just service to then activation to then strategy. And now there's a platform development type role and an analytics type role. And it's really just the, the group as a whole has really become almost an, an internal agency and an internal think tank for the brands and using data and using analytics to provide insights for our partners to where maybe in the past the partner had been able to purchase something and then it was on them to figure out how to activate it. Uh, but really because of the amount of information we have on the, the league side and the club side, to be able to provide those insights and to be that almost internal agency to me has been one of the biggest shifts that I've seen. Yeah, for New Balance, um, I think prior to 2016, 2017, before we were working with Hookit, um, we really didn't know what our sponsorships were delivering back for the brand. Everything was really anecdotal. It was much more about relationships, which sports marketing managers like to which athletes. Um, but now we're using the data um, to really understand what our sponsorships and investments are bringing back to the brand. Um, so we started looking at teams originally as we were evaluating contracts, um, and then dove deeper into each athlete. So that way, when we're going into renewals or prospecting, we have a better sense of what is this person actually going to do for us in the long run. Yeah, our perspective on it, um, Hookit's been around actually for over 15 years. So 
Um, we've always been really deeply involved in sponsorship and tech. And when we first started, we were actually a CRM platform for brands to manage their athlete programs. And we evolved into a data and analytics company in 2014, uh, really out of a sheer need to quantify the value coming from social. Because uh, as we were building out the platform, we had all these athletes. And you look at like Cristiano Ronaldo now has almost 420 million followers. And back in 2014, we were seeing all these athletes, teams, and leagues that had you know millions of followers, and it was a huge miss that no one was really tracking that as a way to uh, justify sponsorship value. So we really evolved our platform to focus on that, uh, became more of an analytics company to quantify and measure sponsorship return. And um, the last couple of years has just been really interesting because brands now, it's, social is the number one way that they're activating their sponsorships now. <clears throat> and everything is so fluid and you can really shape the content strategies and have a lot more control over how you're you know, marketing your brand through your partnerships. Uh, so I think the last couple of years has been all about helping brands understand how to leverage social, um, you know, really demystify it for them. And I think now uh, the biggest trend that we're seeing is that brands are really uh, evolving the way that they look at all their, their partnerships because the whole model has changed. And um, you know, so it's a really exciting time for sponsorship. And Lauren, I know you're by no means a small company at New Balance, but compared to some of the bigger giants in that industry, how do you keep up with that from a business, technology, and sponsorship perspective? Yeah, we, um, we have an internal saying that we don't want to be the biggest, but we want to be the best. Um, so it's no secret that we're not Nike, we're not Adidas. Um, our budgets obviously aren't the same as theirs. Um, but what I think um, being a smaller brand allows us to do is really focus on every dollar that we're spending, um, what is that getting back for us in terms of value or driving marketing, um, uh, our activation awareness or just overall brand growth. Um, so being able to see if an athlete's posting about us or um, if we have a certain uh, elite partnership or a team partnership, um, are our dollars coming back to us? Um, it's, it's super important to make sure that we don't you know, waste anything. Um, Nike and Adidas probably, you know, waste money um, just because they can. They can they can test and learn more things than we're able to. So having the data um, that we can look at every day, every hour, every minute to see, um, you know, which investments or which posts are driving the most value for us, and then being able to take that information really quickly and adjust social plans or adjust um, media partnerships. Um, Productions. There's all sorts of things that we're able to change in real time to make smarter decisions that will help us grow in the long run. And Scott, I know this can be a question for all of you who have done it, but I know you guys specialize in this recently, um, incentive-based sponsorship. So for anyone who doesn't know, those are they have a base pay, and then it can increase based on whether it's likes, engagements, if they make it to the playoffs, um, anything like that. How do you see companies using that now, and has there been any success in those? Uh, yeah, so to Lauren's point, everything is so real-time now. You can literally track what your athletes and partners are doing for you in real-time on any platform. Figure out what's working, what's not working. Um, so yeah, InBev, I think two years ago now, had really announced that they were moving to this performance-based sponsorship model. And um, I think it's been a, a slow ship to turn because it's, it's uh, really just changing the way that all of these deals are structured. So. From our perspective, we're seeing that every brand wants to move in that direction. It's just how do they approach it? Because they have existing relationships and deal structures in place. Um, and, and I think the bigger piece is you know, taking a step back and figuring out what's most important to them. And then that way they can collaborate with their partners and get alignment on mutual KPIs that they want to pursue. Uh, and then they, from there, they have to then restructure their deals. So it's, 
it's not a, uh, it's a very complicated thing, but I know that every brand that we're working with is moving in this direction because they just feel like um, they want more accountability in terms of what they're getting in return and uh, just better measurement and, and uh, you know, having the partners really focus on what's doing or what's most important to them as a brand. Yeah, and Scott, from, from our side too, we're, we're seeing it as well. And I think in the past, sponsorship had been purchased almost on a futures bet sort of feel, right? Where we're purchasing this because we think it's going to perform this way because of companies like yourself that can measure things now um, and everybody feels legitimacy in the numbers and can agree on what the numbers are. I think we'll probably see more of these incentive-based properties or platforms come about because everybody trusts the number, right? There's one number that everybody can feel good about rather than one, the partner comes with a certain number, the property comes with a certain number, they're not aligned, and now you're arguing over what the payment is, right? If everybody agrees on what those KPIs are, what the measurements are, who's measuring it, um, I think we'll see more success with those sort of partnerships. Yeah, that's a really good point. The consistency in the data is, is critical yeah. uh, because I think brands in the past would rely on the properties to provide information and data on, to justify the spend. And uh, it was disparate. It was just inconsistent with the way that they're evaluating other partnerships. So it made it really hard to have this type of model. And all of that's changing now. Yep. And Rob, I know you were just saying about being able to predict it rather than just hoping that it'll work. How do you actually predict that? What are some steps that you take to predict the success? I know you mentioned fan avidity, being able to measure things that you weren't able to measure before. Yeah, the, we, we use both on the league side and then on the club side a number of different tools to look at fan engagement, to look at our sport, to look at health of our sport, to look at, at fan just different tracking and, and how they're doing things in the stadium or in the arena or during an event or even online through social media. Um, our teams now with everybody lock, locking on to the free Wi-Fi in the stadium and, and logging in, we now know where traffic is going when people are sitting in the stadium. And we know if somebody's sitting in section 132, what they're looking at maybe compared to section 314. And if we run an activation that happens at halftime and then all of a sudden we see traffic go to that partner's website, we can in some ways attribute that to the actual activation, right? Um, through a couple of different properties and vendors, we can look at avidity and likelihood to purchase and different things along those lines. So we can, we can look at some case studies and build those case studies and project out to other partners of how like categories perform or like partners perform or people with like objectives perform. So we're looking at all those different things um, we also, through some data polls that we have through different partners like Barclay Card and things like that, we can actually look at purchase data and provide an actual ROI on an aggregate level. We don't get down to the individual, so I can't say Tiffany had a New England Patriots Barclay Card and she purchased this. We, we don't get down to that <laughs> level of detail, not to scare anybody, but we do an aggregate so we can say New England Patriots fans are more likely to purchase from Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks, right, and it may help the Patriots in that category. Um, so we have that sort of information now that we've never had in the past. So now is everyone going to think twice when your <laughs> Wi-Fi is on at a stadium? Or <laughs> Please spending? log on. We, we need all the information we can get. <laughs> um, Lauren, so when it comes to actually choosing who your ambassadors are, yep. uh, how do you go about that? I know you guys have Kawhi Leonard as a new one and a very successful mm -hmm. one, um, but what do you do to decide who that person is going to be and how successful that is? 
Yeah, I think there's a ton of different things that we look at. Um, we are a very value-based organization, so um, finding athletes that either align with um, similar you know, values or um, even down to on-field performance, how that's translating to value um, on, on social. Um, so we'll look at um, basically before we go into a contract or even if we're just prospecting, it's, it's kind of looking at that athlete or even the team holistically. So what are they doing off the court or off the field, but then also what is that value for us then on their social channels or any other, um, any other space? Um, so we use tools like Hook It for a value, um, social listening to see what people are saying about them. Um, so I think it's, it's really looking at the athlete or the team as a partnership, a long-term thing more than just a sponsorship. Um, we want to make sure that this is a long-term beneficial relationship for both of us. We want to help them uh, achieve the goals that they have as well. Um, and then once, once we have them on board, um, we get access to a lot of their, their uh, social data and use that not only to help our brand grow, but also work with them to help their, um, them achieve their own goals. So if they're trying to grow followership in a certain market, how can we help activate um, them in that market to then grow their, their fandom elsewhere? Do you guys have any similar? Yeah, I mean, because we work with so many brands, it's, it's interesting to see like how unique and different every brand is. So if you look at an endemic category, like take Red Bull and Monster, for example, they're very different in their approach and how they evaluate athletes and event sponsorships, whereas you know, Monster will go out and sponsor established existing events and Red Bull creates their own. Um, when it comes to athletes, you know, Red Bull is more focused on content and social reach and less, I mean, they care about performance, but not nearly as much as Monster, which cares a little bit about content, but they care a lot more about winning. So there's, and you can tell that like as a brand, they're just two very distinct brands and have different audiences that they reach. Uh, so it is interesting that every brand has kind of a unique approach to how they select partnerships for their, that align with their, their brand goals and, and their values especially. Yeah, I'd actually add to that. For us, right now we're in a big um, push for reach. So also selecting athletes um, that bring us to new audiences is super important. Um, we have a ton of uh, room to grow to catch up to the other top two contenders in our category. So looking at athletes, um, I think prior, we have a, a long, long list of athletes on our roster, but we know that a small percent of them are actually driving the bulk of the value. So as we go out and look for new athletes, we want to make sure, will they help us grow in the long term? We want to be riding their coattails a little bit more than them riding ours. So I know you talked about, too quickly, um, the merchandise in Toronto. What was that? done for. Yeah, so um, Kawhi Leonard uh, left the Toronto Raptors and went to LA for the Clippers. Um, so I think there's some obvious things that we can do in terms of marketing activations, just knowing obviously he had a huge fan base in Toronto after they won the championship last year. Um, so we did a billboard uh, thanking uh, Toronto with Kawhi um, for all that they've done. Um, but we're actually using audience data in um, some really interesting ways with Hook It. Um, right now, uh, as we're preparing for Tokyo 2020, we have an athlete um, who is a track athlete. She wanted to grow her presence in Japan. And through the audience data, we can see um, when we first started talking about it, she had zero followers in Japan. So now, as we start to think of our mer uh, marketing campaigns for what we'll do as we activate towards uh, the Olympics, we can have a benchmark of you were here, you had no presence in Japan, and now after the Olympics, you had X. Um, so using the audience data to help identify some opportunities for our athletes who, again, we see as partners. Um, the other thing that, we're, um, that we use the audience data for, or location data, is 
Um, as I mentioned, historically we've used athletes based on relationships. So if a sports marketing manager liked a certain athlete or had um, used them in a previous campaign, it's likely they would have been selected to do another campaign. But now we can use their, um, our full roster data and see these athletes resonate in these markets, so let's use them instead. So really using the data help drive decisions instead of just um, you know, subjective opinions. <laughs> Yeah, because you guys are getting to a point now where uh, instead of looking at just total engagement and the total value that it generates, um, looking at quality engagement and quality of the value. Yep. And it's really around that persona modeling of figuring out like which audiences are engaging with your athletes and is it the right audience. And it's getting to that level of detail now so that you can really measure the quality of the engagement versus just the overall total. Absolutely. I know you have sort of that league and team side. Do you see anything with that on the team side as well, working directly with the athletes for that purpose? Yeah, look, I think we, we always say at the league, you know, fans are fans of teams and players, and, and the league is third, right? Um, you know, we can drive from the league level mass volume, um, but as far as that avidity, fans are fans of, of players and teams. Um, so for us, it's important to understand where our benefits are and, and where we can win, um, but also understand that if everybody's playing well in that ecosystem, everybody can win, right? So from a, a club side specifically, it's important for us to understand what partnerships our players have and make sure that you know, if, if a certain player, a star player, has a compete with a team partner, that we're sensitive to that. Um, you know, we see that in a couple of markets, specifically in, in the shoe category and specifically in, in some other key ones, like soft drink is one where individual players may have a deal that's, that's a compete with the team. Um, it's important for us to understand what avenues we can go down and what avenues we can't. Um, and, and we generally at the team and league side went in more of that mass engagement sort of piece, right? We have eight home games a year on the NFL side. If you count preseason, you got 10, um, where we're bringing 80,000 people together on, an, on a game day basis. Um, you know, so those sort of mass environments are, are where we generally win. And, oh, go ahead. Yeah, the ecosystem is, is really key, because when you look at uh, not just the league or just the team, but when you add up all the player fan followings as well, that's yeah. when the numbers start getting super interesting. And we do a lot of overlap analysis where we can compare followers of an athlete or a team and compare it to the overlap, or how many overlap with a, a sponsor or a league. And the numbers are a lot smaller than you'd think. And in, you know, in some cases, it could be as low as 5% of a follower of you know, like a uh, Dale Earnhardt or something, you know, following, also following NASCAR. So, um, so the overlap numbers are not nearly as high as you'd think. So there's a huge potential to really leverage the broader ecosystem to add value for the partners. Yeah. And what are the, some, some of the areas? I'll actually ask all three of you this, but I'll start with you since you specialize in this. Measuring the immeasurable, so things like logo placement. I know when it comes to ESPN, things like linear were hard to track for a very long time, but something like logos on a jersey, same thing. How do you track that now? Um, yeah, so there's, there's computer vision technology now, and it's getting to a point where it's relatively commoditized, and I think more of the special, the secret sauce is in how we aggregate posts and how we aggregate data around, you know, the whole sports ecosystem. But the analyzing of the content is really critical. So uh, computer vision software, the way it works is that you basically process photos and videos, and it's searching and scouring for uh, logos, and now it can actually detect products as well. 
So this was one of the early kind of uh, software per, or solutions that had really leveraged AI. And there's this whole concept of like logo training where some logos are uh, more easily detected than others. And the engine or the system just gets smarter as it detects more logos and becomes more accurate. Um, so that's, you know, that's the scale that we're at where we're ingesting, you know, a couple million social posts a day, you know, to be able to analyze all of that in real time is really difficult. So we literally have a system that's just running nonstop looking for, you know, like 5,000 logos right now. And uh, so it detects, you know, we measure size and clarity and, um, and we have like the recall rates for every single logo and all of that stuff gets factored into uh, how we value content for brands based on the quality of the promotion. And I'd say, Scott, that even goes a couple of steps further, right? And Tiffany, you mentioned the jersey patch um, and just in stadium signage in general. I was at the NBA working on the jersey patch program before coming over to the NFL. And as we were looking at the value of the jersey patch, you know, so many people were talking about the TV broadcast value, but then as we started to look at it, and especially as it hit the marketplace, we started to see the social value, and the social value was outpacing TV value two to three to one sometimes, um, depending upon market. So we see that not just in a prevalent asset like the jersey patch or something like that, but even in stadium signage that's primarily purchased for that in-stadium audience, you see a pickup of, a, of an image or a play that goes viral and all of a sudden you see millions upon millions of impressions for a piece of signage that in the past probably hadn't had any value attributed to the social aspect of it. And now we see almost a good portion, if not half of the value, driven by social in some cases. So having a company that can track that on the AI side is insanely valuable. Yeah, on the NBA side, we, um, we just did an analysis and looked at, you know, from uh, the fall until now, there was roughly $300 million in value generated uh, across the league for um, about 400 companies. And a lot of them are being detected because they're just in the content and they may or may not be actually associated with the NBA. Uh, but the fascinating part was that 92% of the value came from visual. Yeah. And the two ways that we track are we look for text promotion, so hashtags, mentions, keywords, uh, but then the computer vision allows us to identify the logos. And without the computer vision aspect, you would miss out on 92% of the value because the, uh, the, enti or the partners in the sport aren't implicitly promoting brands via text. Yeah. So, uh, so it's all branded content and visual promotion that is what we're identifying. We've seen a ton of value, um, especially from like in-stadium signage. Um, so for example, uh, we sponsor a cricket team. We have a ton of in-stadium signage there and have seen a ton of value coming just from that. So while people are capturing, capturing social content or the team or athletes are posting themselves, we're getting the value there. And I think the other interesting thing, especially coming from a sneaker brand, is um, we're not just looking at the value that's while, while they're playing their sport. So our logos are um, on their apparel and on their footwear um, when they're living their everyday lives. So we're getting value when they're you know, at home with their families or out with their friends or just posting, you know, random Instagram stories. So I think being able to capture all of that and look at, again, the athlete as a whole, it's, we're a part of their everyday lives, um, whether they're doing what they're paid for or just, you know, being a human being. Um, so we're being able to see, like, the things that they're posting about specifically for our brand, what is on the court or on the field, and then also just in their everyday lives. And I know we've seen, too, just a whole range of activation channels now compared to what was available even five years ago. So for every team, um, company, network, we're able to activate in tons of areas if there are some areas that we find that are completely immeasurable. What are some ones that you guys have found have been beneficial, um, whether it's 
direct athlete to fan um, or any other outlet that you weren't able to use before and now can? Um, I'd say for us, and I'll, I'll take it a little bit of a different way, for us specifically, in some of our larger partnerships that are maybe 20, 30 year partners, um, like a naming rights partner, for example, they may not have signed their deal when social media was even a thing, right? <laughs> when the only digital they were looking at were maybe banner ads and pre-roll, and now we have integrated content on our website, integrated content on social media, just general posts and things like that, right? So um, for us, as far as different assets, it's, it's important for us to continue to engage with the partner, see what their objectives are, see what they're looking to accomplish, and then our teams do a really good job of having almost a, a little cheat sheet on their side of these are the assets that can drive against this sort of objective, right? And if you're looking for general impressions, then maybe some social media contents for you. If you're, if you're looking for something that's more hand-to-hand -hand combat, something in stadium is, is more beneficial for you. Um, so it's important for us at the team, league, and even on the brand side, to we continue to walk the stadium, continue to see what new assets we can build. Um, the teams do a really good job of pushing me on an everyday basis of different assets that they want to see us open up on the policy side. Um, and a lot of that right now is driven primarily on the social and digital side of things as we see new platforms come on what seems like daily, right? Um, it's, it's important for us to look at those assets and look at those channels, figure out what they may be able to accomplish and then how we can get there in a way similar to what we were talking about earlier to where it benefits everybody in the ecosystem. Yeah, I would say social for us is a huge um, piece of the pie. We're also back in broadcast now, but um, being able to have our athletes, obviously on a one-to-one -one basis, talk to their fans and have our brand be a part of that, whether it's something they're wearing or giving away product um, or events have actually been a really big thing. Um, going back to the values piece, um, Kawhi Leonard, is, um, we just did a partnership with the Boys and Girls Club. It was a meaningful um, act like location for him as well as for our own company. Um, so being able to use our ambassadors in a way that helps them um, achieve their goals, whether it's um, a cause or um, just something that, that's really core to who they are, um, and then be able to capture that content, put it on our own channels, have them put it on their channels, and the same with the organization that's um, you know, benefiting from the relationship um, has, been, has been really import, uh, important for us. Um, there's, I think now more than ever, it's just a time of um, you know, that one-to-one -one connection with everyone, especially through social. So really breaking down those walls and um, you know, kind of having everyone be able to be a piece of the, um, piece of the pie is, has been really great for us. Yeah, and I think the, uh, the brands are getting a little bit more trusting to to work, allow the athletes to have their own voice and the teams and the leagues. And with social, it's so fluid now. And where television is a lot, there's uh, way stricter guardrails. You don't have any control over what the content looks like. And on social, it's just complete freeform. So I think uh, the balance now is that brands are trying to let the athletes, teams and leagues have their own voice and be authentic with who they are and find ways to integrate their brand in a way that makes sense so that it doesn't look like an ad. You know, and it's, uh, so it's really critical on that side. And I think the other thing that we're also hearing a lot of is social is amazing and great, but they're also still trying to find those real world experiences and like, so the fan zones and uh, really getting that one-to-one -one interaction in a real, real world environment to supplement the social side is um, also pretty big top of mind. Yeah. How have you guys found that tracking these has come back exactly opposite of what you thought? I know we've done a few where 
we'll see something that we thought was very successful and we get the numbers back, we realize, okay, that one actually took the most time or the most energy but really didn't have the turnout that we thought. Or in the reverse, something we thought was very simple ended up being the most effective campaign that we had. What have you guys found, I guess, good and bad um, from some of the analytics that you've gotten back? Um, yeah, I mean, for us, we, we discover things like every day that are just like really interesting. Um, so I guess the first one, Instagram stories, there's, as everyone may or may not know, there's a lot of changes happening with Instagram right now. So they've really kind of clamped down on what data you can get through their API and um, you're no longer able to track personal accounts. So there's been a big push to get athletes to convert to creator or business accounts. Um, and then that enables you to still track the posts that they're making and all that. Uh, but you can't track their stories without uh, them authenticating their account with your platform. So, uh, but we're finding that when they do authenticate, there's about 30 to 40% of their overall value is actually coming through the stories, um, not through the photos and videos that they're just posting to the wall. Um, so there's really interesting things like that. Um, we did a full analysis on Cristiano Ronaldo, given how massive he is. And we found that, you know, his lifestyle and family photos perform three times better than his product promotion uh, posts. So, which makes a lot of sense, but now they're trying to figure out the, his partners are how do we get more integrated in his lifestyle and family shots versus like on field and um, just deliberate promotional shots with him holding a shoe. Um, so yeah, lots of things like that. And, um, and then a lot of times you'll see athletes that kind of surprise you where um, in NASCAR right now, Haley Deegan is the number one driver by far and she hasn't even raced like a cup race yet. So, um, you know, she's younger and her family is kind of has social and, you know, in their DNA. Um, but yeah, she drives 5X more engagement than Chase Elliott, who's number two. And, um, and she's got, you know, a third the number of followers. So Girl there's power. just, yeah. <laughs> Scott, it's a great point though. We've seen a lot on the NFL side of the taking the helmet off, right? And being yep. able to know the personality of a player and just looking at lifestyle type things in general. Um, the Cleveland Browns this past offseason, the dog pound, a lot of excitement around Cleveland in general with Odell and Baker and everything else. Um, they partnered with a local no-kill animal shelter during training camp to bring a bunch of dogs into their training camp on the sidelines where fans could adopt these dogs. Um, they saw more engagement on social media of people watching the puppy cam than watching some of the actual football footage where people were spending 15 to 20 to 30 minutes just watching dogs run around on the sideline of a football field. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, so we see a lot of that lifestyle type stuff really taking off and um, it's a little bit hit or miss, right? There's times where that stuff can fall flat as well. Um, and and you, to your, Scott, to your point earlier, you need to tell it from the right voice and that's where that dance comes in between the brand and, and the club or the team or even the athlete of, hey, this makes sense for us, this doesn't make sense for us, we need to tell it in this voice. Um, but we see that lifestyle stuff work really, really well. Yeah, the, uh, the no helmet uh, concept is interesting because motorsports are inherently at a disadvantage because you can't see the expression of the athlete at all. So we always find that their behind the scenes footage trends way better than their on field or on track. Uh, because you just can't see the athlete. And at least in football, they, you can see their expression when they you know, perform well. And, uh, but yeah, helmet sports are definitely at a disadvantage yeah. for like, really being able to feel that passion and energy. Yeah, we've seen actually the same thing, especially on te uh, for tennis. So Kobo Golf, we just signed her a couple years ago. And depending on the content, some will um, outperform others. So if it's just you know, a 
an in-match, in-play uh, shot, it won't perform as well as the celebratory, like, yes, mm -hmm. this one. Um, the other thing um, that we've been looking at is, um, it's, it's interesting, but it's actually worked really well, is we're taking athletes from different um, sports vehicle, uh, verticals and using them to help commentate um, for other sports. So we used one of our track athletes, Harry Akins, to commentate for the Cricket World Cup. And he is just such a wonderful personality, super engaging. And we saw some of the highest view-through rates on our Instagram stories by using him. So even if he's not driving the most value um, out of the roster of track athletes or as, as a whole, we can find opportunities to use athletes in different ways that help grow their presence, also help us link back between different sports. Um, so that's been really interesting. And the one thing that we've seen that um, doesn't work as well, which isn't much of a surprise, but as Scott was saying, is um, kind of that forced product placement. So if we have an, um, an athlete kind of posting one of our traditional ads, it's not going to drive as much engagement because the fan is so quick to know that that's, that's very much paid for. So um, <laughs> anything that's really authentic gives, gives the consumer the, the behind-the-curtain view of the athlete has been working really well for us. We see that a lot with our um, ESPN as a Disney company and we've done a lot of that where we call it synergy the group that we have but we'll cross over with <clears throat> movies that are coming out put athletes in there and vice versa with ours and it, it does work really well when you start to see those similar fans realize that you're all connected yep. um, helps a lot so we're going to wrap it up um, and with questions after this but I want to just get a looking ahead from each of your groups so what do you see the next five to ten years looking like with sponsorship is there Anything that you're super excited about? Is there something you think is just going to totally take over the industry? Um, yeah, I guess I can go first. I think it's going to be um, it's going to be a huge transformation because historically brands, I think, it was unclear where the who really held the cards, and you know, there's these massive teams and leagues, and um, they really were kind of dictating how the deals were going to be done. And I think that brands now are getting. Um, a lot more comfortable and proactive with how they're approaching sponsorships. And there's just tremendous pressure for ROI. It's, um, you know, we've been talking about this for a couple of years now where you've got $160 billion being spent on sponsorship and sponsorship-specific activation, and it's not measured or quantified like any other form of marketing. It's kind of the last remaining bucket that is largely a black box. And, you know, we're very specifically focused on social, so, you know, we're able to track and quantify that, but there's this whole universe of what sponsorship touches. So I think uh, the biggest pivot is going to be brands are going to kind of put the industry on, on notice and really challenge them in a really meaningful way to justify ROI and uh, improve it. And they're going to use it with data, and, or they're going to uh, use data to do it. So I think the, um, the way that we're viewing the whole tech space is that, um, you know, we've been talking about Spontech for a while because, you know, you've got ad tech and MarTech and uh, sponsorship is just not being viewed the same way yet. Um, but I think the university, you know, a couple of years from now is there's going to be a, the ability to start organizing all these disparate data sources, not just social, but also digital, on-field and on-site presence and all of that. And then with these machine learning and AI technologies, you're able to analyze data in such a powerful way now that it'll help brands get way ahead of the, the whole process and they'll be able to make much better and more informed decisions um, in a way that will like, shift the power to let the brands really control the narrative. Um, I was just going to say, for, for me, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with media consumptions, uh, or media consumption, excuse me, as Gen Z grows up. So they're mobile native, um, 
there is statistics around less of them want to go to a live game. They'd rather watch from home. Um, now with social media platforms taking over streaming rights, um, it'll be really interesting to see from a brand attribution piece, if people are watching all these games on their phone, what credit is coming back to the brand um, as it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, if it's not on a screen like a TV. Um, I think that will be super interesting. Also the world of esports um, and online gaming to see what that does for, for brands as well. Um, yeah, I think there's, it's kind of a, every day it changes just, just like social media, so <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, and for us, I, I, I think there's a few different things, and I agree with everything both of you guys said. I think um, part of it is just the true storytelling aspect of what brands can do through sponsorship, and I think through some of these different tools, there's more storytelling opportunities to really own something in the mind of the consumer and in the mind of the fan of whether it's an athlete, a team, or a league. So for the brands to truly tell that story through some of the channels, and, and we've touched on it a lot, I think just looking at digital, looking at social, that's going to become, if it's not already, and in some cases it is already, that be beachfront property, right? And that true value asset. I think in the past, you've looked at some significant in-stadium signage pieces or in-arena signage pieces as the true beachfront property. Um, and I think we're seeing digital and social take on in that area of the totem pole as well. Um, you know, you mentioned a, a lot of fans are not making their way into the stadium, if for no other reason than because as digital brings people closer together, you have people hundreds of miles away from where the game is consuming it just as much as people that live two blocks away. Um, so so the, the world is getting smaller. We have maybe 1% of our fans that are ever gonna step foot in a stadium, right? They're, they're watching on TV or they're watching on their phones, um, but they may be watching around the globe they don't have the access to the stadium as if you live close by. So from a, do a dig digital or social standpoint, to have that inventory and for that sponsor integration there, I think is gonna be the true access point for a lot of our fans that, that we are the gatekeepers for. Yeah, I think one other point on the media side is, um, you know, we haven't really talked about the fan companies, but Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, they're kind of just lingering in the backgrounds and can come in and disrupt this whole thing at any time. And, um, and I think the types of content that people are consuming on like Prime and Netflix um, could create a whole new world of opportunity to have like this behind the scenes documentary style content that brands can be integrated with. And, um, and it's just a way for people to consume sport in a completely different way other yeah. than just watching live games, which has been largely driving everything so far, but it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out over the next 10 years. Yeah, and the other thing, I don't think we can go a full hour talking about sponsorship <laughs> in 2020 and beyond without at least bringing it up is just sports betting, yeah. right? And, and the engagement that that's going to do with fans and, and non-fans, right? Yep. People that are not even engaged at all in the sport, but maybe engaged in sports betting, may all of a sudden start watching different sports that they've never watched before and never consumed before. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see what that either lift or, or not lift attributes to the sports world. Yep, absolutely. We have a ton of questions, so thank you for those. Um, we'll get started on them now so we can get through most of them. Uh, Lauren, I'll start with you, and, and anyone can chime in with this too, but Kawhi Leonard was used as an example. How do you measure sponsorship value for athletes with little to no social media mm, presence? That's a fun one. <laughs> um, so we actually, one of the reasons why I think he was so attractive to us is um, our brand um, uh, kind of tagline is fearlessly independent. So we, we are a privately owned company. We will remain that way probably forever. 
Um, so we do things differently than some of the bigger dogs in the space. Um, so Kawhi not having social media, he was doing the exact opposite that basically every other athlete is doing. Every athlete is commercializing themselves on social with brands and sponsorships. Um, so he's been an interesting one to try to measure. I think obviously we couldn't have gotten him at a better time. Um, so even though we can't measure him really on a platform like Hook It because, or his own social channels, we can obviously measure our own. Um, we can look at social listening um, to see what people are saying about him. Um, are they associating, associating a brand with him? Things like Google search trends. Um, really trying to close that gap. Um, we have used him in our first, um, we just launched our We Got Now campaign. He was the first spot in that. So dropping those at uh, the commercials at opportune moments, um, especially when LeBron's playing. Um, so being able to help use him to drive conversations, um, whether it's about our product or our brand or, or just him and have that association has been um, definitely a focus point for someone who is not on social media. We're trying to get him back on Twitter, but uh, don't think that'll happen, so yeah. Have you guys worked with anyone with similar to little to no social media presence, which is rare today, but still there. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, Kawhi, when, um, when all that went down, we were, I know we were doing a lot of brainstorming of how can we track him. Um, but yeah, typically we'll see athletes that didn't care about social, um, that tune kind of changes when the brands start kind of really reinforcing the need for it. And uh, they, you know, over time become a lot better at doing it. So uh, yeah, we've just seen more of like behavioral shifts of, you know, athletes having to care about the complete picture, not just on-field performance, but also now representing themselves as a brand and, um, and supporting their partnerships as well. So, yeah, it's more behavioral changes. Okay. And uh, Lauren, again, this one started at you, so thank you. <laughs> Lauren's popular. Um, how important is a return on objective structure to offset the ambiguity of an ROI metric? So right now we're really focused on... Um, KPIs that will help grow the brand. So we're focused a lot on reach, um, uh, distinctiveness, so brand attribution has been a huge piece of that. Um, we, it's really hard to measure the exact ROI, obviously, of an athlete unless they're using their links in bio and things like that that are they're trackable and driving revenue. Um, so we uh, kind of set our KPIs thinking big picture and then again, are trying to work with athletes or um, recruit athletes that will help us achieve those goals more broadly. Um, as we're looking to grow our brand. So if um, China's a huge market for us, uh, the NBA, we just signed a uh, partnership with them. How can we use those partnerships and athletes maybe in those markets to help um, grow our brand? Um, eventually it'll re uh, result in sales, but it is, it is pretty tricky to figure out how to get that um, exact link between what the athlete's doing um, and what the actual revenue return is. But I think aligning yourself with what are the, what's the big picture, what's the long-term goal for our brand, and then using tools like Hook It, Google Search, uh, social listening to then track against those and see is the value claim back to us? Is the association still pretty pretty poor? Um, and then as you go into contract negotiations, you can use that data. Um, yeah, that answers it. And I'd say to that, especially to that last part that Lauren mentioned, from a property side on the sales side of the table, it's important for us to know that dynamic and have that conversation as well of, as far as what's more important to the brand. Right, because there are some times where maybe less measurable or at least less revenue driving objectives are maybe more important than the specific ROI, right? We know how much they're investing. We know the ROI side of the equation, but sometimes that's not always what the brand's measuring. And it's important for us to ask those questions. And that's something that I think is happening more and more on the buy side and the sales side of understanding what that is and having that open conversation. 
as we talked about earlier with the AB model, um, that that's going to be key to the success of sponsorship for both sides moving forward. Yeah, it's a really valid point because when you look at the large percentage of brands that are trying to drop out or renegotiate, it's that alignment that yeah. needs to happen and that can only happen by having really open conversations about goals and objectives. And that kind of leads to another question that was actually just added. How are you using tech to uncover new assets that can be added to rate cards and leverage through sponsorship? Yeah, so we, we talked a little bit about the white space. Um, that's something we're constantly doing, both uh, in social and digital, but as well as in stadium. And um, for the NFL, a little bit less on the TV visible side, just, just based on some of our TV agreements. But certainly looking at what opportunities there are, as well as just looking at our current assets, right, and whether they're positioned the right way to be monetized the right way. Um, you look specifically at, at digital, and we're looking through the data that we get through companies like Hookit to understand where the product placement works best. And if it's a three-minute video, is an end card the best of a three-minute video if people are dropping off a minute and 15 seconds in, right? Like understanding where that placement can be um, and also looking at just the entire ecosystem of if we place too much product into social media tweets and things like that, are people unfollowing us? Are people leaving us? If we send so many email blasts, are people unsubscribing? Right. So looking at the data as far as a full rate card piece um, allows us to not just find new assets, but also fine tune our current ones and understanding where we are from a social media perspective, whether we're selling on a KPI type basis as far as a CPM or whether we're looking at a CPE um, and based on what the partner wants but also based on what performs well in market we may change what we're selling based on individual content series. Yeah the content piece is huge because um, everyone is conditioned to kind of uh, you know create their content for television and uh, because of social you're able to figure out which content performs best on which platforms at what time of day and uh, so you can really optimize how you want to integrate partnerships that way. Um, and you can do it literally in real time now. And I'd also say just on top of that, maybe a non-social, non-digital piece, we measure foot traffic in the stadium on a game-by-game -game basis, right? So we understand where people are going when they walk in through security. Are they making a left or a right and, and what that looks like? And that impacts lounges and naming rights of, of cornerstone partners and where we place different things and where we place kiosks and is the Pepsi bottle going to sell on the 100 level and the fountain soda is going to sell on the 400 and 500 level and that impacts everything from a sponsor perspective as far as integration and storytelling and the type of information we're pushing through through the app. Well, a number of teams of, of our teams have gone either fully mobile or mostly mobile on the ticket sales side which allows us to, to message a number of different things to our fans on game day and throughout the year. So you can track what we're looking up, you can track what we're buying and where we're walking. Yes. Got it. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. On an aggregate game. level. <laughs> <laughs> um, when it comes to female athletes in women's sports, what do you think is a key to driving more sponsorship for that category? I'll start with you, Scott. Um, yeah, that's a tricky one because it's uh, like from our experience and just tracking and social, like they tend to trend really well, you know, especially when you look at sports like golf, they're typically like, more than half of the top 10, they're women players. So, um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, just really leveraging what they can control because I think there's a lot of debate over 
um, like equal pay and all of that uh, when it comes to the, act the actual competition and prize money. Uh, so, but they have complete control over their social audiences and managing their own brand and um, really just trying to find ways to continue leveraging that. You know, we did a, a study for a brand, uh, another footwear brand, but we found that Letitia uh, Buffoni was like the number two most valuable female athlete for them. And she's a skateboarder from Brazil, and um, but won the X Games, and you know is like a really high-profile skateboarder in that category. But it was, um, but just really critical because she just understood how to leverage her own brand, and you know she was second only to Alex Morgan in a World Cup year. So, um, so I think you know really leveraging what you can control to build your brand and, and uh, represent yourself for your partners. And I know Coco versus Kawhi, for example. Mm -hmm. Have you seen major differences with the success of those and how you market them? I think um, they're obviously two different, two different things that have, uh, two different players that have helped grow um, our brand um, in different ways. But um, what I was gonna, I was gonna say is we are obviously acutely aware of the fact that women um, are probably uh, getting underserved in terms of sponsorship. Um, Budweiser had that great ad I think that highlighted all of the placements that um, were still open for sponsorship. So. As a brand, we're acutely aware of who's on our roster, how, what's the balance of male to female athletes that we're including in campaigns. A lot of it's dictated by um, their on-court performance. So the bigger that uh, they are and the better that they're doing, obviously the more clout they have, uh, the more awareness they have, and then uh, we obviously want to help uh, grow that even more. So for Coco versus Kawhi, it's actually really interesting to see the times of the year when they're most important um, and when to like really dial that up because it's most effective for us to activate with them when they're most relevant. So for Kawhi, it's during um, All-Star Weekend and the playoffs and obviously the finals. For Coco, it's all the open. So really finding those moments in time to help activate them. Um, we do that across the board for all, for all of our athletes, but I think we are very aware of um, making sure we're representing both um, male and female athletes equally. Um, so our campaign rolling out uh, throughout the year will we'll balance both of those and really celebrate. Yeah, one of the um, tennis is, a, is an interesting example because we were with one of the racket companies and they were explaining how because Federer hasn't retired yet and Nadal hasn't retired yet, they're playing way longer than they had anticipated and it's now squeezing all of their budgets for other players specifically on the women's side. Yeah. So, it's, um, so there's things like that that happen that are just outside of everyone's control mm -hmm. and it's now impacting like women's tennis. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll direct this next question to you, Rob. Um, I know you've worked with teams NFL, NBA, NHL, yeah. I think as well. Um, what can a team or a club provide a brand to strengthen the relationship and enhance value from an analytics perspective? So how can a team assist a brand from an analytics perspective? Yes. Um, it, it just through the insights and, and the information that we have, right? I think we have so much information on our fans and, and our fans cut across a number of different areas, right? And so depending upon demographic information, household income information, um, you know, we can provide targeted campaigns if that's what you're looking for. We can also provide more widespread engagement if that's what a brand is looking for. So I think through the information we have on our fan base, on what reacts to our fan base, that's part of the, the group that I'm in, Club is Development at the NFL. Our job is to share those best practices across what's going on across the entire league and across the entire landscape, right? So, so to understand, and as I mentioned earlier, be that in-house consultant, be that in-house strategist, to look at the information we have, look at how our fans are reacting to different things, and come up with some customized platform for that brand that's really baked in that data 
Um, that's really the type of information we can provide. And we'll touch on youth quickly since we haven't there yet. How do you manage attracting youth audiences without stepping on regulations or encouraging bad behavior? Nice to take that one. <laughs> I think for us, um, obviously, we know that um, younger consumers are more influenced by um, celebrities and athletes. So being with the right athletes at the right time has been uh, hugely important. And then also just establishing some really organic relationships. So our sports marketing managers will have relationships or network, um, just finding those opportunities that don't go against certain re regulations and um, you know, start the conversations pretty early. Um, but I think for us as a brand, the, the bigger we grow, the more of these um, you know, young athletes will start to remember us as they uh, get older in their career, and then hopefully, you know, decide to buy us instead of a competitor. Yeah, for, for us, it's a few things. I think one, you mentioned kind of the organic, it's that authentic storytelling, right? And not just forcing something in there for the sake of it being in there. Um, we at the NFL have changed some of our marketing generally to focus on a, on a younger audience. I mentioned kind of the helmets off type things, the NFL 100 commercial we did last year, the, the Super Bowl commercial we did this year with the, the kid running on the field to deliver the game ball, right? Like, we've, we've tried to focus some of our storytelling that way, look at the player personalities, because we see that resonates well. And when we integrate brands in it, it's, it's doing it in an authentic way. You mentioned kind of the policies and the, the legal language behind that. That's really important for us, and, and we've partnered with some third parties to ensure that everything that we do and our teams do um, is on the up and up because just data privacy in general is, is such an important factor. Um, and the CCPA and a couple of different things, like we want to make sure that, that we're in a good place. So we've worked with some third parties to make sure that everything we do is, is done well and done correctly. But we also know that there's some tremendous value there for partners that are looking to get into that space. Yeah, yeah I think with, um, especially when the athletes are turning professional a lot younger, uh, like Coco had turned 15 like a couple of months before Wimbledon last year. And uh, so I think just learning about responsibility or responsible use of social media is like really critical in the data privacy side of things. And um, that's kind of the biggest threat that we see is, you know, just how early some of these kids are using social. And a lot of them are even bypassing, you know, signing up for platforms and saying they're 13 when they're not and, you know, things like that. So, um, so I think it's just really important to, to teach them about responsibility and responsible use of tech. And we'll actually close with this question because I think this is a good one for some of the people here. If you're starting a new league or a company, I know we have tons of startups just in attendance here at Sloan. Um, what brands would you want to bring in to increase and bring in new audiences? So just some ideas of what types of companies would you reach out to? Where would you start with sponsorship revenue? Um, can you repeat the question? Yeah. Um, if you're starting a new league or company, what brands would you want to bring in to increase and bring in new audience? Okay. Um, Just had to throw in a hard one to wrap it up. <laughs> Hopefully it's not a football league. Um, <laughs> but no, I think f from my perspective, I would say I wouldn't say a specific brand, but I would say more brands that are willing to engage in the story that that specific league is looking to tell, right? Um, especially if you're a startup league, uh, budgets are probably tight. So it's, it's important to utilize and engage with brands that are going to utilize your IP and get your IP out there. Um, in some ways, it's important to maybe take less money on the upfront if that brand is willing to incorporate you into their marketing budget, right? Because that saves you on some of that side. Um, but making sure that you have reputable brands 
um, and making sure that, that they're willing to, to leverage your marks in a way that makes sense, I think is the way I would go if it was a startup. Yeah, and I would say, in addition to the reputable side, it's influential brands. They don't need to be the biggest, but they need to have influence over their category. And people that, when they make decisions and are first movers on new technologies and uh, that people follow. Yeah, I would say the same. I, I think finding the value add for your, both your company and the brand, um, what can you offer to them that they wouldn't have um, without the partnership? Um, would be something super um, beneficial. And then I think, again, just the reach that that brand would bring to you um, would be something that I would be thinking about if a different um, a startup or a brand or a tech uh, came to work with us on. Okay, well, thank you all for coming. It actually just hit zero, so that makes me happy with my job here. Um, Good work. <laughs> and then looking forward to everything on the league, shoe, and tech side. Um, definitely look out for Hook It. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.